The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. They're probably used to falling open to Romans, but for a time this morning, I would like us to go to Luke chapter 2, since Christmas is only a week away, and uh, it is a week from tomorrow that we will be remembering the, the day that is set aside in our world to remember and celebrate the coming of Christ into this world. It is a monumental event, obviously, the incarnation of God, God in human flesh, Christ being here with us, and the wonder of deity robed in humanity. It is a monumental and marvelous occasion that we celebrate in the life of the church and in redemptive history that, the, that God himself became a man. We want to approach this time of year with a heart of worship and a heart of gladness and a heart of celebration. It's easy, obviously, to get caught up in so many things around this time of year that are not oriented around Christ, and so we want to make sure that our hearts are responding with a heart of worship and praise and adoration of Christ and His birth. To help us maybe sense that monumental reality, I want to take you to Luke chapter 2, verses 36 to 38, which is the account of Anna. You, You may not know this, or maybe you do, that we've been in a series working our way through the gospel accounts of the birth of Christ for the last 13 years. Uh, And we're not done yet. We have one more major section, and that is the section that we're going to cover this morning in the person of Anna. It is a phenomenal text that shows us what God has done in giving himself witness to the fact that Christ is God in human flesh. Let me read these verses, and then we'll spend some time in them this morning. Luke 2, verses 36 to 38. And, and there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. And at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of Him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. We're all very familiar with the Christmas story. We are aware of the announcement by the angel to Zechariah and Elizabeth that they would have a child, John the Baptist, who would be the forerunner of the Messiah. We're familiar with the announcement that the angel gave to Joseph that his betrothed would be with child by the Holy Spirit. We're familiar with the announcement that the angel gave to Mary of the fact that she would be the mother of the Lord. We're familiar with all of that. We're familiar with Mary's response, known as the Magnificat. We're familiar with John the Baptist's father's response, Zechariah's response in the Benedictus. We're familiar with the great chorus that rung out as the angels celebrated to the shepherds and announced to them the arrival of Christ's birth. We're familiar with the wise men and what they did. And by the way, make sure your wise men are far away from the manger scene. They were there much later, so make sure your nativity is accurate. What I find interesting, though, is for many of us, we are not very familiar with Simeon and Anna. 
these two great senior saints whom God used to declare a witness to the fact that Christ really is the Messiah. And so I want to draw your attention this morning to Anna. She is part of that small remnant of witnesses that God used to confirm Christ really is the Messiah. You, you remember, God providentially has us in our study of Romans chapter 10, and you remember through the last weeks, we've seen the fact that Israel, by and large, on the whole as a nation, rejected their Messiah. Romans chapter 10 verse 2 says, I testify about them that they have a knowledge for God, but not in accordance with a zeal for the Lord, rather, but not in accordance with knowledge. So, Israel as a whole, though they said that they were waiting for the Messiah, they weren't looking for the true Messiah. They had a zeal, but not based on knowledge. And Romans chapter 10, verse 3 tells us why. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. This was Israel's problem. Israel as a nation was banking on righteousness by doing rather than righteousness by faith. Instead of welcoming a Messiah who would grant them his righteousness through his sacrificial death, through his ministry to them, rather than accepting that, they sought to accomplish their own righteousness, a righteousness by works. All they needed to do was confess Christ as Lord and believe in him, as Romans chapter 10 verse 9 told us last week. That was all that was necessary because the gospel was so close to them. All they needed to do was confess with their mouth and believe in their hearts. The gospel was as near as their mouth and as near as their hearts. But that is what they would not do. They would not confess Christ as Savior. They would not receive Him as their Lord. And so, for the most part, the entire nation of Israel rejected their Messiah. And yet, within that, within that large national scale of unbelief, there was a remnant, a small band of faithful Jews who were awaiting and expecting Christ's arrival. It was a very small contingent. Romans chapter 9, verse 27, it says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. There's only a small group. Within national Israel, there's always only been this small remnant that is truly knowing God, and in this case, welcoming His Messiah. The Jewish leaders expected Messiah would come through their ranks, through the religious ranks, through the Pharisees, through the Sadducees, through their religious system, through their righteous system that they had erected. They believed that that's where Christ would come from Judea, from Jerusalem. He would rise up through the ranks of formal Judaism. But he didn't. He came quietly, discreetly, humbly in Bethlehem, born to two Teenagers. What humble beginnings. And so there was only a small remnant, only a small, seemingly insignificant group of Jews that, that truly welcomed the arrival of their Messiah. 
In fact, it was so small that after Christ's public ministry, after 33 years, after his life, after his teachings, after his miracles, after his death, after his burial, after his resurrection, after his ascension, all the believers in that area were gathered together in Jerusalem, and Luke tells us in Acts chapter 1 that there were only 120 faithful. Think about that. After Christ's entire earthly ministry, all that there was to show was 120 people. A small group. And yet within that group, a remnant raised up to bear witness and testimony, to provide confirmation of the Messiah. We see it in the shepherds, and we see it in the angels, we see it in Simeon, and this morning we want to see it once again in Anna. Tremendous, tremendous account of the confirmation of the Messiah. Before we get there, I need to take you back into Simeon for just a moment. So look back in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, verse 25. And I needed to set the stage for you with Simeon because the events that transpire with Anna in the temple in Jerusalem actually take place at the very same moment that this incident with Simeon occurs as well. So look back in chapter 2, verse 25. It says this, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Here is a godly man, a righteous man, Luke tells us, a devout man, a man who feared God, a man who was looking for the consolation of Israel. That's a a messianic title. He was looking for the arrival of Christ, the true Messiah. He was passionately longing for that day when Messiah would come and usher in redemption for Israel. And verse 26 tells us something very interesting about him. It says it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. What a tremendous promise. We don't know how he knew this other than there was the ministry of the Holy Spirit coming to him at some point and affirming to him and telling him that it would be his privilege to see Christ before he died you imagine living with that? What a way to live your life. None of us have any idea how long we're going to live. We have no idea when our last day will come. And, and ultimately, Simeon didn't either, but he knew this. He knew he wouldn't die until he's seen the Christ. That at least tells you how long you're going to live. And here's this event. This moment that took place in the temple as Joseph and Mary arrived there at the temple to dedicate their son, Jesus, six weeks old. He's about 40, 45 days old, and there is a tradition within the Jewish system that you would come and bring your firstborn child, a male child. Look back in verse 22 of Luke 2. It says, when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. It was part of their tradition, part of their law that any firstborn male was to be dedicated to the Lord. And so Joseph and Mary fulfill this obligation. They take Christ to the temple after the 40 days of purification. And God has been sovereignly orchestrating all these events and circumstances to to, to bring it to the point where Simeon arrives at the very same moment that Joseph and Mary present themselves and their son in the temple. Verse 27 says, And he came in the Spirit into the temple. 
Somehow, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, Simeon is directed that very moment into the temple courtyard. You can imagine there's people most likely milling all over the place. There's hundreds, maybe thousands of people. They're walking around. They're talking. They're in the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women. They're, they're engaging in temple activities. Joseph and Mary don't know that this encounter with Simeon's about to happen. Simeon doesn't know that this is the moment when the very promise given to him by the Holy Spirit that he would see the Lord's Christ before he dies. He doesn't know this is the point that is going to occur. They're both walking around, kind of minding their own business, when suddenly, somehow, God makes it clear to Simeon that the Christ child was there. And somehow he knew. And I wonder, how did he know? And, and what took place in his heart and his mind? What, what was it that actually convinced him and, and made him realize that Christ was there in the arms of his mother. What was that initial introduction like? Hi, I'm Simeon. I'd like to hold your child. I don't know. I would love to know more details here, but we don't know. Somehow they met. Somehow God providentially worked to convince Simeon and make him know that this was a Christ Verse 28, look what it says. And he took him into his arms. Huh. Can you imagine? Imagine the flood of emotions that would have overtaken this man who's lived for maybe a majority of his life with the realization that he would one day see the Christ child. And here he is now holding him. Beholding his face, looking into his eyes, seeing that child wrapped up and cradled in his arms. The Messiah. And suddenly he speaks. He speaks, and you can see what he says in verse 29 to 32. He says, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. He says, Okay, Lord, I've seen. I have seen the Christ. You have made good on your promise. I have beheld him. I have seen him. I have held him. I have been able to look into the face of my Savior My eyes have seen your salvation, verse 31, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. Marvelous. Simeon says, I can see. I have seen him. I have beheld him. I can depart in peace now, knowing that my eyes have laid themselves on your salvation. And I love what he says. It's your salvation. He says, God, you've done this. You've accomplished this. You have uh, done this for us. It's what you have done Verse 31, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. I love this. He realizes this is not something he's done or anyone else has done. He realizes that salvation is wholly and entirely a work of God. He describes Christ as a light of revelation to the Gentiles, the glory of your people Israel. He understands and knows that Messiah would come and not just offer salvation to the Jews. He understands as well that this salvation which he came to offer would go to the ends of the world, to the Gentiles, to all peoples. What a glorious confirmation of the Messiah. And then I want you to notice verse 34 and 35. There's something that Simeon also wants Mary to understand, something that would have greatly troubled her heart. Verse 34 says, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. Oh. 
Simeon speaks prophetically here of what Christ would be. He would be a dividing line. He would be a stumbling block. He would be one of those who, who the world would trip over in many cases. He would be opposed. He would be rejected. He would signify what people hate. He would receive their hate. He would be the object of their hatred against God. And he would be the mark for all the fiery darts of the wicked one. He would be opposed. And because of that, because of all of that opposition and all that animosity for Mary, look at verse 35 says, it says, a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Simeon says to Mary, Mary, your heart's going to be broken. This precious six-week-old baby that you hold in your hands is going to be a stumbling block to the world. And because of that, your suffering will affect you greatly. Your heart will be pierced. You will experience pain because of the treatment of your son. And you would be deeply hurt by the events that would transpire one day surrounding your son. That's exactly what happened. You fast forward 33 years to the the death of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, and who was there? It was Mary there beholding her son at the feet of the cross. So all of this is going on. And all of this is taking place. And all of this serves as a divine confirmation by God of Christ through Simeon. And we have the record even 2,000 years later of the fact that this is the Christ. It brings us to verses 36 to 38. It brings us to Anna, the last human witness surrounding the birth of Christ. We don't know much about her. In fact, this is the only place in Scripture that she is really mentioned. We don't know a lot of details other than what these three verses tell for us. But I love the fact that God summons not just an older man in Simeon to bear witness to the fact that Christ is the the child, the, the Messiah, but he also summons this woman, an older woman, a godly saint, who herself would testify to the fact that Messiah has come. He uses this senior saint, to offer irrefutable proof that Christ really is the Messiah. So I want, I want you to sense the joy this morning. I want you to sense the emotion. I want you to sense the confirmation. I want you to sense the anticipation. I want you to sense this woman's gladness and joy over the fact that what she has longed for for many years has come to pass. It's the same heart we need to have. It's the same anticipation that we need to have, for we live between the two comings of Christ. Yes, they were looking forward to his first coming. We live between the two comings, and we must look forward to the second coming in the same way that Anna and Simeon were looking ahead to his first coming. And so what, what kind of attitude ought we have in the midst of this season? What kind of attitude ought, ought to characterize us in light of the Messiah? I want to give you two points. Two points, very simple points. One is the character of Anna, and number two is the consolation of Anna. And we're just going to walk through these verses this morning, and I want you to see just how tremendous this moment was for Anna, and I want you to experience that same love for Christ as she felt in this moment. Number one is the character of Anna. Look at verse 36. 
And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then as a widow, to the age of 84, she never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. Here is a woman of irreproachable character, a godly, older woman who the Lord uses mightily for his purposes to confirm the Messiah. And I love the fact, as I said, that God uses this older widow in this moment to accomplish his purposes. By the way, I just need to say, people like this are a gift. Older, godly saints, older, godly women are great gifts to the kingdom. I remember back 20 years ago when Julie and I were about ready to head to seminary from Spokane, there was an older couple that came from Los Angeles to our church and visited, and we were sent out that day, or we're going to be sent out soon. And, and so they came up to us after the service and said, hey, we go to Grace Community Church as well. We'd love to have you a part of us, and, and just we're so excited to welcome you down there. And so a couple months later, we traveled and went down there, and they were 70 at that point, and they said, you know, we just, we don't want to welcome you to this church, and we're going to have you over for dinner, and they did, and they gave us cookies every week, and I got fat. And she gave us CDs, and she gave us books. All those three years, every single Sunday, she was faithful to bring us something, to minister to us in some way, to pray for us, to send cards, and now she's 90, and we still talk. What a gift. What a gift. And then there was Mrs. Clint at Grace Community Church in Los Angeles, who when we were there was 101, still teaching Sunday school. She passed away at 108, still teaching second graders. Can you believe that? They said, do you want us to move the, the, the classroom down to the lower level because it'll be easier? No, I want to get there. I have no problem. I'll climb the stairs. Don't worry. I just want to keep teaching. 108. What gifts to the church. That's what Anna was like. Her name, Anna, means grace. Her name, Anna, is the Greek form of the Hebrew name, Hannah, which also means Grace. And by the way, if you do a study of Hannah and Anna, you will find that there are some uh, remarkable similarities between these two women who share the same name. They, they share the name and that it both means grace, and they were both graced of the Lord in mighty ways. They are also both characterized by prayer and fasting. We're going to see that in a moment. And we know Hannah was a woman who prayed and fasted for her son, Samuel. Both were present when a child was dedicated. Hannah was there when her son was dedicated in the temple. And here Anna is also present when the Christ child is dedicated in the temple. And both accounts describe these young boys growing up. First Samuel 2.21 says, And the boy Samuel grew before the Lord. And if you look down in verse 40 of Luke chapter 2, it says, The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon, upon him. Remarkable similarities between Hannah and Anna. 
And Luke tells us something very interesting about her. He says that she was the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. Phanuel means the face of God. You can see God's imprint upon this whole account. The whole work of God, the grace of God is upon this whole account. And all the connections that Luke is making for us in this account, he says he was, she was the daughter of Phanuel, meaning the face of God, of the tribe of Asher. Remember Asher? Remember Jacob's 12 sons? Asher was the eighth of Jacob's sons. His name means happy because his birth made Leah happy. What I find something very interesting as I was studying this week, there have been some misconceptions about the 10 lost tribes of Israel. Have you heard about that? There's been some conception or belief that the 10 northern tribes of Israel were actually lost tribes. And you remember the history there. You remember that in 931, the kingdom split into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The southern kingdom was uh, comprised of Judah and Benjamin, and the northern kingdom was comprised of the 10 other tribes, those northern tribes. And in 722 BC, those northern tribes were taken captive by Assyria. They were taken out of the land, and they were brought to Assyria, where they were uh, put into exile for a number of years. And the assumption was that all of those 10 northern tribes completely perished and were never heard again from. So maybe you've, you've read some books or you've heard some history, then the, the story goes like this, that those 10 tribes were lost to history and were either wiped out or assimilated into other people groups. In fact, there's been some fairly fantastic mysteries and legends around these supposed 10 lost tribes. One legend says that these 10 tribes eventually migrated to Europe, and another legend says that these tribes migrated all the way to England and uh, that all Anglo-Saxons today are actually Jews because of these ten lost tribes migrating to England. Other theories equate the Japanese or the American Indians with these ten lost tribes. But the truth is, these ten lost tribes were never really lost. Because we believe in Scripture back in 2 Chronicles chapter 30 that before and after the, the exile of the Assyrians that some of the members of those ten northern tribes actually migrated down to the southern tribes to Judah and to Benjamin and were not actually taken captive in the Assyrian exile. And so when the Babylonian exile actually took place in 605 B.C. and 597 B.C. and 586 B.C. that amongst those groups were some from each of the ten northern tribes. Second Chronicles chapter 30 says uh, that some men of Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. That was prior to the Babylonian captivity. So most likely, in the Babylonian captivity of Judah and Benjamin, there were members of each of the ten northern tribes as well, so that there were individuals from Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Dan and Naphtali and Gad and Asher and Issachar and Zebulun and Joseph in the tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim, who were also taken captive in the Babylonian captivity, so that 70 years later, when they returned from their captivity, not only did members of the tribe of Judah and Benjamin return, but also members of those ten northern tribes also returned, so that they were still in existence, even though maybe they didn't have as significant a presence as they did prior to the Assyrian captivity. They're not lost at all. 
Now, after 70 AD, their ability to track their lineage was lost because the temple was destroyed, Jerusalem was razed, there was all kinds of destruction that went place, took place and the massacre and destruction of that city. And so Jews today do not have the ability to trace their lineage back to their tribes because all those records were lost in 70 AD. But the bottom line is God knows where those people came from because in Revelation chapter 7, it tells us that 12,000 from each tribe will be sealed for the tribulation. God knows where they come from. God knows their lineage. He knows their genealogy. God has all that figured out. But the bottom line is, at this point, they're not lost. How do you know they're not lost? Because Anna is there, and she knows where she came from. She's the tribe of Asher. And Luke knows where she comes from. She's from the tribe of Asher. It was only 70 years later when Jerusalem fell when their ability to track that was lost. But here's this little lady from Asher, just a reminder that these 10 tribes were not lost. And notice what Luke tells us about her. She was a prophetess. A prophetess. You know what prophecy is. Prophecy has the ability to foretell and to foretell. Prophecy in Scripture oftentimes has both of those components. Sometimes it has one of those components or the other one, but in many cases it has both of those components. It has a foretelling aspect, an ability to, to speak on behalf of God about future events, and it has a forthtelling aspect, an ability to speak truth, to teach, or to preach. Anna was one of those prophetesses. There's a few ladies like this mentioned in Scripture. Miriam. The sister of Aaron and Moses was the first prophetess mentioned in the Bible. Then there was a woman by the name of Deborah in Judges chapter 4, and another woman by the name of Huldah. And then Isaiah's wife, the prophet Isaiah, his wife is also called a prophetess in Isaiah chapter 8. And it's hard to know if she actually was a prophetess in the, in the sense of foretelling or foretelling because she actually never said something that was recorded in Scripture that became prophecy. So it's very possible that Isaiah's wife's prophetic role was in the fact that she gave birth to a son who in his name had a prophetic role. Do you remember her firstborn son's name, Isaiah's wife? Maher Shalal Hashbaz. How about that for a name? None of you named your kids that? His name means you're going to be plundered. How about that for a name? Come here, you're going to be plundered. Stop doing that. His name was prophetic. And so there's a very real sense in which Isaiah's wife was a prophetess in the sense that her son's name had some prophetic references to it. But here's Anna. She is a prophetess. And it's possible that she had a role in revealing truth and speaking truth on behalf of God in a foretelling aspect. Or it may be that just that she had a foretelling aspect of prophecy and that she just spoke truth. She was a teacher of God's word in the temple, maybe to other women there. We don't know exactly. Or it may have been a prophetess in the sense that what she is about to say was evidence of her role as a prophet. Regardless, whether she was a foreteller of truth or a forth-teller of truth, regardless, here is this older, godly, dear woman. Look at verse 36. She was advanced in years, and she had lived with her husband seven years 
after her marriage and then as a widow to the age of 84. Very interesting. Luke tells us that she was married. She lived with her husband for seven years after her marriage, or literally seven years after her virginity. After her marriage, she was married to her husband for seven years. And we don't know exactly what year, how old she was when she got married, but if we do the math and the typical age of a person being married in that culture would have been 13 for women, 14 or 15 for the boys, just like Mary and Joseph. Mary was likely 13 when she got married. And so if Anna was similar, she got married at age 13, was married to her husband for seven years, that means she became a widow at age 20. And then Luke tells us that she was a widow up to 84 years. Now the question is, was that meaning that she lived as a widow until she was 84 years old, or does it mean that she lived as a widow for 84 years? We don't know. It's a textual issue. We don't know exactly what Luke meant. It's possible that he meant the former, that she was widowed at age 20 and lived to the age of 84, which means she would have been a widow for 64 years. The other option, which is like, uh, uh, very likely as well, is that she lived as a widow to, or she was widowed at age 20 and then lived as a widow for 84 years, which means that she would be about 104 at this point. Either way, it's an older woman. No offense, ladies. If you're 84 or you're 104, you're at the latter stages of life. You're a senior saint. And so Luke is telling us very clearly that this is an older woman. And look what he says about her. Verse 37. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings. What a great description of this woman's character. She's been a widow for at least 64 years, maybe 84 years, and here she is. She's in the temple. She never leaves the temple. We don't know if that means she was always there when the proverbial doors were open or if it actually means she lived there, which is a very real possibility because there were apartments around the temple complex where priests who came to Jerusalem to exercise their priestly duty on a regular basis, they would live in those temporary dwelling places. And so it's very possible that Anna, likewise, because of her role as a prophetess, was given one of those dwelling places or apartments, and it's very possible that she actually lived there. She served night and day. She was busy about the work of the Lord, serving the Lord, serving people. This is a woman of a great self-denial. She was not idle. She was not just kind of doing her own thing, living for herself. Here she is in the latter stages of her life, this older, godly woman, concerned about the Lord, concerned about others, spending her life in God's house, spending her life with God's people, constantly at worship. And notice the end of this verse. It says that she was serving with fastings and prayers. She had a private devotional life that came out in her love for the Lord and her love for people. She was a woman of prayer. She, had a woman, she was a woman who loved the Lord and who manifested that in a heart of worship and adoration and praise and fastings and prayers. Here's a woman who is singularly devoted to the Lord. What an example. For 64 years, or maybe even 84 years, she has been faithfully serving the Lord. I love that. Some people fade as they get older. 
Some people compromise as they get older. Some people get older and they get bitter because of the trials of life and the hardships of life and the difficulties of life and the sufferings of life. And some people just get to that point and they're hard and they're crusty and they're bitter. Not Anna. Her love for the Lord burned strong. Her affection for the Lord burned deep. Talk about spiritual devotion. Here is one of the most spiritually devout people in all of Scripture. Think about the six, seven, eight decades living for the Lord, faithful to the end. What an example for us. By the way, she would have met the requirements of a godly widow that Paul gave in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Remember, Paul gave a qualifications of the list of a godly widow. He says, if, if she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in treaties and prayers night and day, that's the kind of woman who honors the Lord. That's the kind of widow who honors the Lord. And he says a widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. That was Anna. Faithful to the Lord, fixing her hope on the Lord, continually entreaties and prayers to the Lord. And God raises up this godly woman, one writer says the years had left Anna without bitterness and an unshakable hope because day by day she kept her contact with him who is the source of strength and in whose strength our weakness is made perfect. What a godly woman. Ladies, what a great role model for you. What, what, a, what a woman that we would emulate in terms of her steadfastness and her devotion and her diligence and her zeal and her commitment and her, her love for the Lord and her zeal for the things of the Lord. This is her character. Number two, the consolation of Anna. The consolation of Anna. Look at verse 38. At that very moment. Stop right there. At that very moment. What moment? The moment that was taking place with Simeon and Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus, all that we just went through at the beginning of the message, all that history, all the circumstances in the temple as Joseph and Mary are there bringing their son to dedicate him and Simeon comes up and somehow by the Spirit is affirmed that this is the child and he takes him in his arms and he says those words in verses 29 to 32 and he says to Mary what he says in verses 34 and 35, at that very moment... She came up. She began giving thanks to God. I wish Luke had filled in some more details. How did she know? How, how, how did she know? Did Simeon say, hey, Anna, come over here? They probably knew each other. Did the Holy Spirit somehow indicate in her heart that this is what did, was the, the, the child and that this was taking place? We don't know. I, I wish we had given more details here, but somehow she's convinced, she knows that this child is the Christ. So verse 38 says, she began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. 
Now put, put yourself in her shoes. Go back 2,000 years. Try to think in a Jewish mindset for just a moment. You have heard the teachings of the Old Testament. You have read them. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 and 2, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. That verse and that text had been resonating in her heart and mind for many years, for decades, that that moment was one day going to come. Isaiah 49, verse 13, Shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth into joyful shouting, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. If you're a Jewish person in that day, that's what you're hoping for, for that comfort, for that joy when you break out into joyful shouting because Messiah has come and the kingdom has been brought in. Isaiah 51 verse 3, indeed the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places and her wilderness. He will make like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her and thanksgiving and sound of a melody. Do you think that was taking place yet at that moment in Jerusalem? No way. There was apostasy, there was rebellion, there was rejection, there was disobedience, there was wickedness faithful Jew would have been longing for that moment of thanksgiving and a sound of a melody in Jerusalem. Isaiah 52 verse 9, break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. That's what a faithful Jew was looking forward to, the redemption of Jerusalem, comfort from the Lord and the person and work of the Messiah. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, The Lord, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. That's what they were waiting for. Isaiah 66, verse 10, Be joyful with Jerusalem and rejoice for her, all you who love her. Be exceedingly glad with her, all you who mourn over her. If you're a faithful Jew, part of that remnant 2,000 years ago, your joy and your expectation is bound up in the fact that what you currently see is not the way it would always be because there would be coming a Messiah who would fix all that and deal with sin and deal with apostasy and change hearts and bring in the kingdom. That was what they were looking for. The blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, the king promised in the Davidic covenant, the spiritual renewal of the new covenant when God would change their hearts and give them a new heart and transform them from the inside out and plant his spirit deep within their hearts and write his law on their hearts and give them a new heart and transform them and cleanse them. And when that happened, the lion would lay down with the lamb, the swords would be turned into plowshares, and the world would submit to and honor the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That's what they were waiting for. It was a dark, despairing time because of sin. And here is this faithful woman waiting expectantly for Christ. And there he was. Can you imagine? 
Imagine the joy that must have flooded her heart. Imagine as she approached Simeon, cradling Christ in his arms. She meets Joseph and Mary. And for the first time, she locks eyes with her Savior. Six weeks old. Must have been a tremendous moment as she was given the privilege to see Christ, the one who had been so long promised and so long anticipated. So verse 37 says, verse 38 rather, she began giving thanks to God. Can you blame her? I mean, what poured forth was her lips was praise and thanksgiving and gratitude. And Luke doesn't tell us what she said. He doesn't record for us what she actually spoke. But certainly we know what it would have been like because Elizabeth gave praise back in chapter 1 and Mary gave praise back in chapter 1 and Zacharias gave praise back in chapter 1 and the angels gave praise in Luke chapter 2 and Simeon has just given praise in this chapter and now sweet old Anna adds her voice of praise even though we don't know what it was. She began to give thanks. And then look at the end of verse 38. Her praise turns to proclamation. And she continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. I don't think Anna went out and broadcast the news to every person around her. It tells us who she went and found. She went and found those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. She went to the faithful. She went to the remnant. She went to that small group of people who she knew were faithful Jews looking forward to the arrival of Christ. And she went and found them. And she must have said something like, I've seen him, our Redeemer. That's the word she uses, lutrosis. The redemption of Jerusalem, the one who would deliver from sin, the one who would purchase the price, the one who would take care of what needed to be taken care of in order to satisfy the wrath of God, to purchase people for himself from their sin. That's what the redemption of Jerusalem involved. It was a transformation on the inside where there would be a purchase price paid for delivering sinners from their sin. That's what Christ came to do. And what you have here in Anna is one of the first evangelists. Saying, I have seen the Savior. He has come, the one who is to bring redemption. It must have been a monumental moment for this woman who was 85, 90, 100, 105, 110. For her, after all those decades, to finally see Christ. I would submit to you that if you're here today and you know Christ, that same spirit of joy and gratitude and thanksgiving ought to spill forth from our lips. 
Because what she was looking forward to is what we were looking forward to. And what we've experienced, we've experienced the redemption, not of Jerusalem. We've experienced the redemption that has come to us, the Gentiles, because Christ was the light to the nations. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, then you need to respond with the same sense of joy and thanksgiving and gladness. Perhaps you're here this morning and you don't know Christ. You wonder what this is all about. This is what it's all about. This is what it's all about. It's about Christ. It's about our Redeemer. It's about the one who has rescued us from our sin. And if you're here today and you're still trying to bank on your own righteousness and your own accomplishments and your own goodness to get you into heaven, beloved, you need to stop because none of that will work because the Jewish people as a nation were banking on that and they were all lost for the most part. This is the message of Christmas. The arrival of the one who redeems his people from their sins. Amen? Our God and Father, we want to thank you for sweet, dear old Anna, who 2,000 years ago you used humbly but mightily to identify confirm and authenticate Christ. So, Father, we want to respond in the same attitude. We want to respond with the same humility. We want to respond with the same gladness. We want to respond with the same thanksgiving, the same joy, the same worship. Father, we're living between the two comings of Christ. And though he has come once, we know that he's coming again. And our prayer and our hope and our desire is that we too would anticipate his arrival for the second time with that same spirit of gladness and joy and anticipation. But forgive us for thinking too much about this world. Forgive us for putting our affections too much on this world. Forgive us for, for loving the things of this world because, Father, the things of this world will pass away. So let us long for the return of your Son. And Lord, we pray that it will be soon. We pray that it will happen quickly. We pray that very soon we will see our Savior face to face as Anna saw him face to face. Lord Jesus, come quickly. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for the redemption that has been accomplished for us in him. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.